Metal, mayhem, and magnets. Welcome to Marvel vs. Marvel. It's a podcast where a comedian who has never read a Marvel comic book before in his life watches a Marvel movie or TV show and then quizzes a second comedian. This one was taught to read with Marvel comics and is a Marvel expert. Together, they explore the yin and the yang, and they're both sides of the Marvel journey. This is is our Iron Man remastered episode. We're so pumped to be bringing this to you. My name's Rob Holden. I'm a comedian. I'm a writer. I'm the Marvel expert part of the podcast. And I'm joined by Mr. Will Preston. He's powered exclusively by magnets and ignorance. I, I've got an arc reactor ignorance, I'll have you know. It's, <laughs> a, it's a daft reactor. How excited are we for this one? <laughs> very, just saying, ex- very excited. This feels like our victory lap. If you're new yep. to the podcast or whatever, or if maybe this is your first time you're tuning in, three years ago we started this podcast in the middle of a pandemic lockdown with nothing to do. We knew nothing about podcasts. We didn't really know each other that well. We just tried something out. Three years later, award, award-winning award podcast, live shows, merch, a thriving community of supporters um, like all over the world and on Patreon and stuff as well. And we decided we did not give our best work to the first phase of the MCU. We didn't know how to make a podcast, how to record a podcast, how to do anything. We thought those episodes, you know what, they're a nice little intro, but they don't sound great. They don't have a structure. They don't have all the history and context. Basically, what we did was we uh, made a phone call to George Lucas, and he went, well, what I liked about the first episode was there wasn't enough uh, uh, Star Destroyers in it, so we, we CGI'd them in there so we could have some better effects of what we wanted the thing to originally be so in this episode will shoots last um and we are really smashing through guys we i don't think we we don't know because we haven't got to the end of the episode yet but i don't think we've ever had as much valuable awesome notes trivia history and content to deliver to you ever before on this podcast this is going to be amazing we're genuinely super psyched to do this very coming up We'll explore the Iron Man movies that didn't ever get made. Take you behind the scenes on the creation of Marvel Studios and the making of the first ever MCU movie. Then we'll go behind the page on the creation of Tony Stark and why he's such a revolutionary character. We'll explore the histories of Obadiah Stane, James Rhodes, Pepper Potts. We'll look at the Mark I and Mark II Iron Man armors. How Tony's origins have been changed over the years. And the time he lost his company, his fortune, his armor, and everything else. The lowest point in Iron Man's life and career. So much more to come. This is the big one. Get on board. Strap in. Sit back. Woo! Man. Yeah. I've broken my recorder with that woof. But I don't care. The levels are off the chart with that one. I shouldn't do that. If I had a producer, (laughs) he'd be yelling at me right now. Well, I just adjusted my volume because I am technical. (laughs) Oh, this, let's just, we've got, we've got so much to get into. Um, we've got another, I mean, look, we're going to be doing throughout this year, we're going to be remastering um, some of the first MCU movies that we, me and Will, you know, kind of had our amateur fumblings at um, <laughs> three years ago, starting with this one, more remastered to come later this year. Um, we've also got an announcement about our next Deep Dive episode. Our next deep dive episode is coming in February. 
We've got a huge Kang story um, to get. I know Will is excited about this. It's huge. Um, we'll announce it later on in the show. Mm. Um, so stick around for that. Stick around like it's a radio program. Stick around. <laughs> don't switch. Don't change the dial. If um, only we used Kang's powers to go back and make our first episode even better. <laughs> if only. No, because it's so much better way of doing it. There's so much yeah, more. I know. I know. Um, and let's not forget, our live show is coming your way mm. on the 25th of March this year, 2023. Um, we're at the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton, bringing our award-winning live show that won a Leicester Comedy Festival Award last year. Um, we're doing it all over again, diving into What If, The Marvel Multiverse, Captain Britain, and Agent Carter. You can meet us and see us live and in person We've worked with the Arena Theatre to keep the prices at a rock bottom £5. Um, apologies for everyone outside of the UK. It's just how it is, baby. Um, the uh, link for the show, for the, for the, for the uh, tickets for the live show, is in the notes of this episode, wherever you're listening to this. Um, and you can also find a pinned tweet on our Twitter page, at Marvel versus that pin twin's got the link for you to buy dem tickets. Um, it, five quid to come and see us. Super, super, super cheap. We know you're going to be spending all your money on traveling to the West Midlands, to Wolverhampton to come and see us. And thanks to the great people at the Arena Theatre, me and Will have got loads of opportunity to uh, meet you all, to take pictures, um, to hang out, to chat, to do whatever you guys want to do kind of after the show. Um, it's going to be an afternoon show at 3 p.m. That's the 25th of March, the Arena. Arena Theatre, Wolverhampton. Check the notes for the URL, the Earl, or head to at Marvel versus the pinned tweet. We'll have the link. Make sure you set the time aside. Come and see us, meet us, and get the Marvel versus Marvel experience in person. Now, Will, when we first looked at this movie three years ago, we didn't have a kind of. I mean, maybe we talked about. Um, your knowledge of the character. We didn't have a proper, like, dedicated section about it. No, um, no, no. Before 2008, had you ever come across Iron Man in any of the, like, cartoons? Or did you have a... I mean, because I had loads of action figures mm. of the superheroes, but that's because I knew them and I, you know, I, I, I was super into them. Did you have any toys? Did you have any... Did you see any of the cartoons? Any knowledge of Iron Man before 2008? Well, despite being powered by ignorance, Rob, uh, at a very, very high level. No, I did hear of Iron Man. Um, I can't specifically remember if it was because of a peripheral character in a video game of such, but I remember which video game I definitely remember Iron Man from, and that was one of the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater games where you could unlock Iron Man as a secret character. I remember this, yeah. yeah. Because you had that with the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2, you unlock Spider-Man. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3, you unlock Wolverine. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4, I think, was the one you get Iron Man in. Or it could have been Thug, Tony Hawk's Underground. One of those games, <laughs> you get to unlock Iron Man. and especially Tony Hawk's Underground. And that's this, before this movie came out. Yeah, that is before. This is We're talking, well, Tony Hawk's 4 came out when I was still in school, when I uh, left school in 2003, so yeah. It was uh, the noughties was the time for superhero stuff, and they really pushed it in video games too. How bizarre to have that connection. Yeah. Maybe Tony Hawk is a massive Marvel head. I don't know. Well, it's actually the, the company Neversoft, who made the Tony Hawk's games, as well as some others, also were making the Spider Man game. Remember the Spider Man oh. game? They were responsible for the early Spider Man games, the, the ones the, based the, on the Sam Raimi movies. Yep, that's them. So there was so they had the license to the characters for the game. So obviously, I think they went. Well, we've got the license for Iron Man. 
we're not making an Iron Man game. How about we include him in a character where you get to skateboard? But wait, wait a minute. But if they're not making an Iron Man video game, how have they got the license to Iron Man? I, anyway, I don't that's know. That's my, for guess. Another day. that's my guess. So did you go and see I, I, Iron I, Man at... The cinema. Sorry, we had a little connection. No, no, there. no, no, no. I was just going to agree with you in a really uh, awkward way. Iron Man at the cinema. No, I did not see Iron Man at the cinema, but I remember seeing it on DVD. So the tra- did you see the trailers coming out? Was there a reason? Did you like just did not just con- you do like just didn't connect with me and vibe with me? I yeah, I, I I had no. I didn't go to the cinema much uh, to be honest. I, I right. it wasn't until I started going uh, to college and uni. In 2008, well, around the same time, but just a bit after that, Wait, I really... how old were you when this movie came out? Uh, mm, how old am I? I'm 1987, so I would have been 21. 21. Oh, you went, so you went, that's right, you went to college kind of later and stuff. I dropped out when I was 18 and then that's re-attended what, that's again. What, so I, I was thinking, yeah. wait, so you were... You were not. You were not even sixteen when this movie yeah, came out. I, yeah. I thought you were drastically young then. I started, um, but, but I think my my side on things was I, I was more into Batman than Marvel. I mean, I liked the Spider Man movies and the X Men movies, but when it came to Iron Man, I was just like, never heard of this guy. Uh, I have no stake. I'm not taking a risk. Uh, I don't have a lot of money. I'd, uh, I'm not going to go to the cinema willy nilly. Sure. Yeah. I, I would have assumed <laughs> that the, the whole battle armor and the trailer and stuff would have appealed to someone like who likes action movies and video games. And you things. think you, you think that, wouldn't you? And I'm surprised at myself. I want to slap my <laughs> past self in the face using Kang's powers if I could. Do you remember then when you first saw this movie on DVD when it later oh. came out? Oh, do I? I mean, the movie starts up with ACDC, so that's an instant win in my book. And then Robert Downey Jr. being quick-witted, and then boom, you know, the whole ambush scene happens. And I just, I loved it. I really, mm. really enjoyed this film. And it was just like, right, I'm, I love Iron Man. I love Iron Man. I want to uh, see more of these movies. Not enough to read the comics, mind. <laughs> uh, but, but, but. Doesn't beat the Dark Knight trilogy at the time for me. So Thank you go. goodness you didn't read the comics, otherwise there'd be no premise for this podcast that many years later. God, it's um, like I was planning for the future. <laughs> what we now need to do, of course, is to let Will Preston uh, change hats um, from resident muggle, um, stepping into the role of Mr. Hollywood. Mr. Hollywood to go dredging through the trash can. We don't know why he does that. He just does it to go dredging through the trash cans of Hollywood to dig up the dirt, the behind the scenes dirt that only Hollywood can have and can hide on the Iron Man movie. So, Will, take it away. I know you've got a doozy for us in Absol- this episode. Absolute doozy, Rob. When it comes to, say, digging up the dirt, come on, mate. I know I'm powered by ignorance, but I'm not at ignorant. I know good dirt when I see it. There's, <laughs> you know uh, good dirt when you roll it between your fingers and touch it on the tongue, and, oh, that's some good dirt. There's gold in them there, dumpsters. <laughs> <laughs> What have you got for us? Oh, that's going to be a new catchphrase. Uh, so, first of all, I want to set the scene. This was uh, the, the late, the late noughties, Sorry, I was going to say late nineties. The late noughties. Naughty, I think the noughties was great decade for re-kickstarting superheroes. You had the X Men at the start. You had the new Batman movies coming in. And it wasn't until, of course, two thousand eight that we saw the very first MCU movie. But let me set the scene of the first. First, uh, the two years leading up to this. So two years leading up to the film, we saw the temporary 
conclusion, if you will, of two successful Marvel franchises. We had, in 2006, we had X-Men The Last Stand, which would be the last proper X-Men film until they went back to first class. Now, the budget on that was $210 million. The box office was 400, uh, $460.4 million. Not the not, best. Not the kind of not kind of, yeah, not the kind of return you'd expect for an X Men movie. But that was a blighted, bloated movie that we have said time and I have said sorry time and again we're never going to cover on, on this podcast. Are we never going to cover it, Rob? Is there any chance we could cover it? Uh, look, people have asked and asked and asked. We did the Phoenix Saga mm. in the animated series. We did the, the, the that's the final word on 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 that saga. But Rob, there's characters in there we haven't covered. Probably, I mean, there's there's there's, there's nooks and crannies to be explored. Mister Hollywood's nose is twitching. I'm saying never. <laughs> I'm saying never. <laughs> I mean, messages and vote your displeasure. You are never forcing me to watch that movie, to talk about it, to cover it. It's not happening. Move on, William. Move on. You forced me to watch Morbius. <laughs> forced me to watch <laughs> Morbius. This is the I most did. abusive relationship I've ever been in. <laughs> Toxic Rob. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, in 2007, we had the end of the Raimi trilogy, Spider-Man 3, but Budget, 258 to 350 million box office 895 million so quite fair we looked bit, we looked yeah. at it and we we, we i mean the, the the spider-man movies all hovered around that 800 mm. million i think i think this might have been the highest grossing spider-man movie of the raimi of the raimi lot it was it was uh of course go back to our spider-man 3 episode for more information on it uh i i i don't think it's a bad movie i think it's good it just has we, to be has we, its faults yeah, I, I think I dismissed it a lot after mm. it came out for some of the negatives, but upon re- I don't think I'd ever rewatched it and then rewatched it for the podcast and mm. ended up really enjoying it. It's, 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 a, it's there's, a lot better. There's, there's an old saying uh, that I've heard is, I used to think you were a dumb uh, POS, um, but between then and now, so many other dumb POSs have come <laughs> and gone that you moved up the ranking by default. Um <laughs> The two sweetest words in the English language, (laughs) default. Also, stepping out of Marvel for a sec, the same year, 2008, saw the release of the highest grossing superhero film to date, proving, indeed, for the uh, birth of the MCU, that there was a massive audience for it. There was a massive audience for superhero films. And, of course, that film was The Dark Knight in 2008, budget $185 Box office one point zero zero six billion dollars. Huge, huge, film. huge, huge, huge. I mean, what was your um, thoughts seeing that film? Um, I, I I enjoyed it a lot more than Batman Begins when Same. I saw it at the time. Um, I think it's held up a little bit better than Batman Begins. Um, yeah, um, and there were, of course there was all this Heath Ledger um, buzz and stuff at the time. Yeah, that. that um, that we kind of drove it, and I think we perhaps can't underestimate how popular the Joker as a character is to the Batman franchise oh, when you introduce it into the second movie. That seemed to really help. I'm not entirely sure I would go with your statement of this proved there was a massive market for. I think Spider Man doing Spider Man movies doing 800 million proves that this is it. Don't obviously there's the first billion dollar. That's only 200 million more. You know. <laughs> Um, oh come it's on! A, it's, it's a nice it's, it's milestone. A hop, skip, it's a hop, skip, and a jump from eight hundred mil. It's I think nice once you've milestone. got a superhero movie making eight hundred million, you know there's a massive audience for it. Okay, okay. Um, Not to diminish but, but, Raimi. 
It certainly is a milestone, yeah, the, oh. the first billion-dollar box office. Absolutely. Which brings us, of course, to Little Old Iron Man. Came out the same year as The Dark Knight. An independent movie. Let's not forget that. It an is. An independent film. Marvel Studios were technically an independent movie, just like George Lucas was back in the day. Mm-hmm. Budget, $140 million. Box office, $585.8 million. That's pretty good for a first go. Yeah, for Marvel's first swing at the plate, it's fantastic. But of course, we don't stop there, because it's been out for a while now. 14 years nearly it's been out. Let's go into the DVD sales. So, the estimated... Now, we're talking domestic here, so this is just uh, the US. Estimated domestic DVD sales... 183597134 million dollars Tell me streaming was a good idea. Tell me again <laughs> that streaming was a good idea. What, because of DVD versus DVD? Where's that money now? There's so many people talking about why these mid-level movies no longer exist. Mid-level movies that... I've seen Matt Damon talk about it. He said, the kind of movies I used to do that made me who I am don't exist anymore. The first Bourne film would not have been successful without DVD sales. Like, mm. these movies that they make their budget back on the DVD sales and the box office, mm. and now you've eliminated DVD sales from the thing, um, and the streaming rights are just pathetic. Well, it, so, doesn't, it doesn't stop there. You've got Blu-ray sales as well. Of course, the era of Blu-ray as it sweeps into the HD market. <laughs> 14 million eight hundred and seventy-one. Uh, and $2 million, which brings it up to a total estimated domestic video sales of 198, 468, 136, uh, mil- sorry, 198, million, 468,136 uh, dollars. It's a large chunk of the box office, so it's really important to have that. I always. It's, it's, an, it's on top of the box office. On top that's of the not box part office. of the box office. Oh, no, no. That's what I mean. In it comparison, took, in comparison yeah, it took to the box office. $585 million mm. at the cinema, and then $198 million on, on, on. And that's just American, you know, home DVD and Blu ray sales. I want to know how the streaming market copes with this. How do you mean copes with it? Well, like, uh, what, 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 what the fig? How can you compare the figures against that? Because it's hard to. Because you, you can't. Don't buy, the you rights can't. are terrible. Yeah. There's a, I listened to a massive documentary all about <laughs> the rise of Netflix and how they just bamboozled the the uh, production companies yeah. and convinced them it would be additional income as well as DVD sales. No, the no, whole no. Time they're planning to just take over. Um, no. I never, I never owned a, DVD, uh, a Blu-ray player. Never owned a Blu-ray player in my life. Uh, me um, neither. Me neither. I, had, I never saw the point in it. Uh, I, I obviously, yeah. you have to have a large TV to make the best of Blu-ray, and I didn't have a large TV. No, I was living in bed sits and squats when I was when DVDs were coming out. Yeah. Uh, Blu-rays were coming out. I was like, I, I ain't. What's the point in this, baby? I, I you know. I, thought, I remember and, watching Black Hawk Down on a big TV and Blu-ray, and it's like, I get it. I get it. It's good. It's just I don't have any use for it. No, I was using yeah. my Xbox as my DVD player because I was like, Snap. I can't afford both. Snap. <laughs> Man, okay, so that's the uh, the figures and the numbers. That's Will making sense that's, of the dollars and cents. We have made sense of the dollars and cents, but let's get into the nitty and gritty notes. So, Iron Man coming to the big screen has a long, long history, it seems. Oh. Let's go back 
cannot wait for this. This, this is good. This is good. Strap yourselves in. We've got a hell of a lot to get through, and it's going to be a pleasure. Oh, you're in for a treat. Anyway, that, there's a very big dumpster I found some gold in. In April 1990, Universal Studios bought the rights to develop Iron Man for the big screen with Stuart Gordon to direct a low-budget film based on the property. Apparently... Gordon's film was set to centre on an older, retired Tony Stark living a reclusive life directly paralleling the later days of infamous aviator Howard Hughes. During the first act, there would be some kind of cataclysmic disaster that would cause Stark to dig out the old armour and spring into action once again. As soon as I saw the words Howard Hughes, I'm picturing Tony Stark with a long beard, his feet, Kleenex boxes on his feet and having a wee-wee in a jar. So you're picturing Mr. Burns from the episode of Simpsons where he's doing Howard. You're, you you have yeah. no... Will's entire historical context for everything comes through if it happened on Simpsons. That's, that's like what Grandpa Simpson said. Wow, Grandpa, how do you know so See? much about history? I pick it up mostly from sugar packets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, the, that description of the Stuart Gordon yeah. um, plan for the movie, that really resonates with me mm. as... There was a lot of kind of movies, like high concept movies, like that. I feel in the in the in the nineties, um, like you wouldn't get the origin of. I, I, this is the weird. Thing. I, I've I've not heard this before, so I don't have my words fully formatted for you. But like, I feel like there was an awful lot of TV movies or low budget movies. Where I'd get very excited. I was starved of superhero movies as a kid. <laughs> so I'd search out anything that was kind of high concept, action, sci fi mm. related. And I just, that feels like the kind of thing you'd get an awful lot of, you know, that you wouldn't get the actual Iron Man movie you'd wanted. You get an inventor had an Iron Man thing once and now he puts it on as an old man. I, I'm not expressed myself very well, but that sounds yeah. like. It's spot on exactly what I would expect from a 90s movie, a, a low-budget 90s movie. That I, I like the sound of that, but I like the way they kind of did something similar to that with Ant-Man, where you had Michael Douglas playing Hank Pym, and he's the older mm. Ant-Man, you don't know about it, but it, it's, it's all there... To be both the old person getting, you know, getting getting back into it almost, but introducing a new character to and be they, the new they, guy. They could have done something similar with the the Tony Stark and and Rhodey characters. They could have had yeah. an old Tony Stark helping a young Rhodey with it. Anyway, a that Batman Beyond esque thing. Yeah. Oh. Oh yes. I can't wait for anything. I, I I want them to do old Bruce Wayne. Damn it. But never mind. By the end of the nineties, the rights switched to Twentieth Century Fox with. Nicolas Cage and Tom Cruise both expressing interest in playing the role of Tony Stark. Also, Nicolas Cage has inserted himself into so many comic book stories like he, this, hasn't he? The guy wants to play every single uh, character in every single yeah. bloody comic he does. book movie. He does. I think. I think we should get. We should let him personally. But. I want a new Ghost Rider movie and franchise yes. at Marvel, and I want Nicolas Cage playing old Johnny Blaze. Like in the comics, who comes who comes out of retirement to usher the new kid into the role. Kevin Figfige Fiji, Kevin Figfige Fiji, if you're listening, which I assume you are, because we mentioned you several times in this, make it happen, make it so. Get on that phone to Cage. He's not exactly uh, starved for work. Actually, no, he is. He he, he he needs to pay off that massive tax bill. <laughs> and speaking of tax bills, make Wesley Snipes blade again. <laughs> 
Do it. No, give Mush- Mushar Ali a go. I like him. He's good. I do as well, but I I, I miss Wesley Snipes. Okay, we all on. miss Wesley Snipes, baby. <laughs> uh, also, Jeff Vintar and Iron Man co-creator Stan Lee co-wrote a story for Fox, which Vintar adapted into a screenplay. It included a new science fiction origin for the character and featured Modok as the villain. Tim Rothman, sorry, Tom Rothman, uh, president of production at Fox, credited the screenplay with finally making him understand the character. Shortly after, Quentin Tarantino was approached to write and direct the film for Fox before Fox sold the rights to New Line Cinema. Quentin Tarantino doing a superhero movie. There's a lot of there's a lot of things like that. Like David Lynch was going to do Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I never. I mean, I approached to. I think it means their name was on a long list of people. I I know, but still, it's worth worth looking at that list every now and again just to see how how weird history would have been. Would have nice to see if Quentin Tarantino did it. We'd finally get to see Tony Stark with the foot fetish. Anyway. <laughs> he's footman anyway by July 2000 the film was being written for New Line by Ted Elliott Terry Rosio and Tim McCanley's with McCanley's script using the idea of a Nick Fury cameo to set up his own film so already people are edging towards Let's set up, let's get the ball rolling on other characters. Let's make this a launching point for other characters, maybe. That's interesting, isn't it? And that yeah. Nick Fury had been um, identified, especially because uh, by 2000, we have already had the definitive Nick Fury, as we've looked at. We've already had mm. David Hasselhoff's Nick Fury um, in, uh, in uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. David Hasselfury. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was an experience. Apparently that was good, but apparently X-Men Last Stand, not happening. Any Anyway, <laughs> never happening. Never happening, baby. After this, despite McCandley submitting a script, New Line took a unique approach to writing the film script. Again, hiring David Hayter, David S. Goya, and Mark Protasevich to simply sit in a room and simply talk on camera about Iron Man for a few days. After this, Hayter was hired in 2004 to write a script. On the experience, Hayter said, and I'm not going to do the Solid Snake voice, Although I really want to. I don't know what that means, but okay. It was very unusual. And it kind of felt like they were Can you explain why this is happening for all of us? Okay. uh, Some people will get it, but I'll I'll stop doing the voice. David Hayter, who also did the screenplay for X-Men 2, uh, more famously provided the voice of the oh, video game character a, a Solid Snake. Right, okay. Have you ever played Metal right. Gear Solid, Rob? Have you ever played that? One of the greatest yeah, games of all time? Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of, it's a lot of like, hiding... Hiding's fun, rubbish. Rob. It's absolutely rubbish. Hiding's fun, Rob, and it did it well. Shush. Mm, anyway, okay. David it was a, Like, it's a video game where you don't do anything for ages and then press X to jump out with someone. It was rubbish. No, you, there's a lot of boss battles. You get to fight a tank near the beginning of the game. Anyway, it was very unusual. It kind of felt like they were developing the screenplay for a lot less than it would cost them typically to develop a screenplay. Basically, it was the three of us just fanboying out about Iron Man and all the things that make Tony Stark interesting and how to conceptualise the movie. So, that's a bit wishy-washy, isn't it? It seems like they're just trying to brainstorm ideas in a meeting rather than actually get script done. Yeah, but it seems exactly like a very cheap way of getting a story together. And I've been, as a creative person, I've had the same thing. I've been brought in by like companies that want to be like radical and cool. And instead of paying <laughs> me, and cool. instead of paying me to do a job, they've got a bunch of creatives together mm. for Tuppence Hapney and and said it's a brainstorming session. And after doing about three or four of them, I've come away going, 
they've just they've just like essentially got themselves like an advertising campaign for virtually nothing like the beginning of an advertising campaign or a marketing campaign or whatever for nothing like for a very small amount of money um i don't know at what stage um in their career especially david s goya in the mm. two in 2000 around 2004 mm. oh, goya was He'd already Goy had already written loads of stuff then for TV and movies and things. Didn't, so he, I don't didn't know. he do stuff for the Dark Knight trilogy or something? He wrote. I think he wrote all of them. Wow. Okay. Um, and he's also uh, uh, wrote lots of uh, DC comics as well. Wow. So, Hater also rewrote scripts that had been written by Jeff Fintar and Alfred Goff and Miles Miller, which had included the villa villain, sorry, the Mandarin and Pepper Potts as a love interest. Hater removed the Mandarin. The villain, the, the Mandarin and Pepper Potts as love interest. I should, I should have put a comma there. <laughs> villain, that, that, you know what I mean. Hater removed the Mandarin and instead I chose... I love the idea of Iron Man versus Mandarin, but also at the same time, they're in love. <laughs> <laughs> Hater removed the Mandarin and instead chose to pit Iron Man against his father, Tony Stark. No. Sorry, Howard Stark. Sorry, Howard Stark. Who becomes War Machine? Hater said... You want to try to mirror your hero with your villain as much as possible for his oh, reasoning God. behind making Howard the villain. Oh, all these people that have never read comics making these movies, they try exactly the same thing all the time, constantly. It's so frustrating. It is very frustrating. Really, I think the antagonist should be virtually exactly the same as the protagonist, <laughs> but dark. So if we can have him fight his brother or his father or, oh, God, just... just just do something else. Just do Modoc. He's a giant deformed baby man <laughs> who can and we, hypnotize people. And we finally get him in the next Ant Man film. And I can't wait to see Modoc. Yeah, on the out, big in, out in Feb. Well, we get. I don't know what we're going to get. It looks like some version of Modoc. We'll see. Well, it deals with the multiverse. We'll see. Anyway, David Hayter also made Bethany Cabe the film's love interest over Potts. Bethany Cabe is that a character that rings a bell? It should be Bethany Cable. Cable. Okay. Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> Bethy Cable is a is a is a um, a character from the Iron Man stories. She's a love interest of uh, of Tony Stark's. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Next up, this is when Marvel Studios is formed in two thousand and four. Marvel Studios enacted a plan to produce films independently, releasing them through a distribution deal with Paramount Pictures. Marvel began shoring up a slate of films, and when then chairman and CEO Avi. Viarid quit over created disagreements. Kevin Feige was promoted to president of production just as filming on a movie called Iron Man began. Looking back on his departure, Aviarid recollected. The company was growing fast. We were making movies on our own pocketbooks. I was always, and you can tell to my friends and enemies, and they'll tell you probably the weakest point, I am a one-man show. I make mistakes and I make my successes. They wanted to turn it into a large company. So there'll be a team of people from comics that make notes on the script. Even some board members started reading the script. It was almost comical for me. One morning I looked around uh, and I said, I think this baby is in good shape. I think everybody will be happier if they have creative committees, which I was allergic to. A movie uh, has a singular vision, and for that, you'd better hire a director that has the same singular vision and a writer so it becomes a huge industry when you're on set. But giving the, <laughs> giving the baby the birth, it takes one mummy, and that started moving away from me. I said, you know what? I don't want to do that. I know I don't have patience or temperament to get notes. I'm very proud of Kevin because I think... 
He is today the number one producer in the business. Avi Arad is a huge, huge figure in the history of Marvel Comics. Um, he came in in the mid-90s um, when Marvel... Uh, like, he came in... I think he ran Toy Biz. Mm. He was the head of Toy Biz, the toy company. And when that figure, Ron Perlman, was buying Ooh. up all these different companies and merging them and stuff, um, Avi Arad came across from Toy Biz to Marvel. Um, and he's the one that's kind of, from the 90s on through, spearheaded Marvel outside of comic books um animation deals tv deals movie deals we would not have had x-men or the spider-man movies without avi arid um he was the the father of marvel studios um Mm. and it was a huge momentous moment when before that first movie comes out avi just leaves (laughs) Um, it's it's yeah and it's one of those was he pushed out did he leave kind of things um giving up control he'd been acting he'd been able to act pretty much independently as like the 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 you know the the chiefdom of this little outfit for a, for a, for a, you know a decade or so, um, and then it starts to become a, a, an actual studio beyond him, and yeah. there's a lot more involvement. Look, the Marvel Studios was Avi Arid's idea, mm. and it began because whilst they had positive experiences with um, X Men and Spider Man, they there were and, and they were consulted on those movies. They had these movies. Where, like, um, Daredevil, Elektra, Fantastic Four and stuff, where they weren't consulted and where their ideas weren't listened to. And so he was like, this is BS. Let's get all the characters back and let's be the people that are in charge. Um, yeah, what a moment. They kept the rise of Kevin Feige then. I know. Would you, do you think in a multiverse scenario we'd have seen, we could see... Avi Harrod as the main Marvel guy. I mean, would he do the same job as just as well as Kevin Feige? Because he's done pretty, pretty bloody well. Well, it, um, if he's allergic to the um, to the studio system, if he's allergic to um, conference and committees making these decisions, and there being lots of different kind of involvement in 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 the movies from different. You know, creative minds and things. I don't know. From what I, from what it looks like to me, whoever is running things at Marvel Studios since the beginning, which looks like Kevin Feige to me, I'm sure there are other talented people in key positions. They've been able to balance the thing of it's a studio, so there's lots of involvement, but mm. we come together and we have kind of a singular sort of we, we come up with a singular vision. Yeah, um, we have come up with a good focus. I don't know. It's hard to say. Hard to say. Right, so we get down to the pre-production of Iron Man. In November 2005, Marvel Studios worked to start development from scratch and announced Iron Man as their first independent feature because the character was their only major one, not already depicted in live action. Yeah, it'd be be, um, Spider-Man, Hulk and X-Men, so already farmed out. That's amazing, though, because Marvel has such a large roster of characters. It's it's almost... I know the main ones have been done, like the most popular ones, but it's nice to just go, oh, I can... Uh, we can just dig into that one now. That's also quite popular. Yeah, but it's... So when you're looking at what's popular for a movie, you have to look mm. beyond comic books, really, um, and stuff that's like a proven track record of, of capturing people. I mean... Spider-Man and uh, Spider-Man and X-Men are sales-driven, like they're just massive comic books that attracted millions and millions and millions of people. Mm. And then they've been on TV in various forms, which worked. 
and and you know made money. Um, Hulk, you know, with the seventies TV show and big comic book sales as well. Iron Man doesn't have that. His 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 comic book sales have never done anything spectacular. He's never been the number one character at the company ever. Um, he's never had the number one book, and he didn't. I mean, he had a cartoon series. It didn't mm. seem to go terribly well. All that kind of stuff. You know, it's um, it's hard to know what you're looking beyond for. Other than we're going to roll the dice. Let's roll the <laughs> dice with this. And when Marvel are, are, are in charge, they can say, "Well, this is one of our most enduring characters mm. and interesting, and it can be cool and badass. It can be a real action movie." Okay, continuing. According to Associated Associate Producer Jeremy Latcham, we went after about 30 writers and they all passed, saying they were interested in the project due to both relative obscurity of the character and the fact it was solely a Marvel production. Early scripts of the film also directly referenced Sony Pictures' Spider-Man 2 by identifying Stark as the creator of Otto Octavius's bionic arms. That's amazing. I'd that never is. heard that. I've never heard that before. Um, just, oh, just imagine if that linked in with Spider-Man. God, that would have been great. Well, spoiler well, it alert. Might, it, might not have, it might not have been necessarily saying this is this is in the same word. It, it might have been of sort of saying... It might not have said Dr. Octopus's arms. It might have said he built some unique bionic arms for that guy who went... You know, you could imagine it both... Yeah. In, you know, it happened again maybe in the, in the MCU world. Who knows, but yeah. That would have been That's, a nice wink. In April 2006, John Favreau was hired to direct the film. Favreau had wanted to work with Marvel producer Avi Arad on another film after they both worked on Daredevil. I forget he directed Daredevil. Well, no, he didn't direct Daredevil. He was just on Daredevil, wasn't he? He, he plays Foggy Nelson. He plays Foggy Nelson. Yeah. I was about to say, wait a minute, did he direct Daredevil? No, Can't no, Can't if the no. film was bad. He's usually good at films, John Favreau. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he'd, uh, you know, with Maid and Swingers. Oh, Swingers. Um, and then Zarathusa. Ah, that came. I, I did see that name come up. Never seen it. If it is, have you seen it? Is any good? I was working at a cinema when it when it was out, so I've seen a lot of it. <laughs> seen a, um, I haven't seen it. Seen a lot. It's of fun. It. It's it's a Juma- It's like the it's the unofficial Jumanji sequel. Oh, okay. It's um, from the it's 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 like Zarathusa from the same world as Jumanji. It's about another board game that comes to life. Ah, uh, space a space board game, like sci-fi board game, and the house ends up floating in space and stuff. Oh, it's that good. sounds it's good amazing. Fun. And it was his first time playing with um, special effects and mastering that. Oh, nice. On developing a movie with CGI, Favreau said, I've always been very reticent to use CGI to the extent that it has been used by other filmmakers. I think that now, through motion capture and the integration of miniatures with CGA, like in King Kong, I'm starting to be a lot more convinced by what the technology can do. But the idea of using CGI and relying solely on that to tell your story those days are past. I think that integrating practical filmmaking and augmenting it with CGI is the key to making it an emotionally involved story. And I think that's what we've really seen with the MCU, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's a lot of CGI, I think, with the MCU. No, but he's saying yes. <laughs> it's integrating practical filmmaking and yeah. with augmenting it with CGI, and that's what they do. Ah, uh, yes, of course. Sorry, I'm, I was trying to figure out that, because I was thinking, do they have a lot of props in those films? Because all I see is just big green screen rooms. Well, they do. They have props, they have sets, they have actors, they have oh, practical yeah. filmmaking. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then sense. they have an amazing backdrop, yeah. There we go, that's, that's it. 
Hollywood special effects legend Stan Winston, a fan of the comic book and his company, who Favreau worked with on Zathura, built metal and rubber versions of the armour. Amazing. They got Stan Winston involved. The guy's a legend. I did much prefer... Like, I love the armour in the first two movies, and I much prefer when... I much prefer the physical... The fact that he was wearing physical armour. Yeah, not Um, the uh, nanobot thing swarming all over him. Well, it's not just that. It's the fact that the CGI armour... I'm not saying I can tell it's CGI, but I think I can. It just doesn't... I want him to wear something proper. Yeah, yeah, um, and move sense. around like that. And yeah, I don't know, but but it does match nanobot armor in the comic, so you know I'm probably wrong. Ah, uh, that's all right. The director found the opportunity to create a politically ambitious ultimate spy movie in Iron Man, citing inspiration from Tom Clancy, James Bond, and RoboCop, and compared his approach to an independent film. If Robert Altman had directed Superman and Batman Begins. <laughs> I don't know, Favreau. If, yeah, if you want to compare yourself to Robert Altman is a is a bit of a, a bit of a stretch there, um, but sure. Yeah, sure. Favreau planned to cast a newcomer in the title role, as those movies don't require an expensive star. Iron Man's the star. The superhero is the star. The success of X Men and Spider Man without being star driven pieces reassures executives that the film does have an upside commercially. Like I thought that 100 yeah. percent at the time. I I yeah. I did not think there needs to be a, a famous person in the role. Nope. Same with Cap. Same with you know those ones. It, it was. It felt, yeah, it felt a little odd at the start to have Robert Downey Jr. doing it. Well, I'm just trying especially because f- he was kind of washed up as well. Yeah, I I will get onto that. But I like mm. that. But uh, so I'm just trying to think back to all the Marvel uh, movies we've watched and trying to think which ones had the main character as an already established star. Incredible Hulk. Incredible Hulk, obviously. Yeah, you had that. Black That's Widow, it. obviously. Black Widow was in the. Oh well, you know. that, that, but, but yeah, but she didn't get a movie until like last year, brother. <laughs> like she, you know, she was she was had a role after being. A, I wouldn't. I don't. She, Scarlett Johansson. I don't think was a box office name. Put her in a movie and people go to pay to see her until after she was in Avengers and Marvel stuff. Okay, okay. Right? Like, oh, it's the girl from Ghost World. Cool, I'll pay (laughs) and see that movie. That wasn't a thing. That was not a thing. Oh, the the weird girl from The Man Who Wasn't There? I'll take my money. Oh, The Man Who Wasn't There. What a film. Mm. But that's not a thing. That's not Mm. a box office name, is it? Yeah, yeah. Ed Norton is Ed Norton. When Incredible Help Call comes out, he's Ed Norton. One of the most expensive stars to hire. But he's been the front of, of box office hits and mm. successful movies and stuff so that that's a i don't think anybody else really no that, as, that, as the as the front i mean there was a lot of there was a lot of publicity around anthony hopkins for the thor movie which probably helped i mean um, he wasn't exactly the main character i'm talking about the no i'm saying i'm saying here. yes but i'm saying there was a lot of publicity mm. in the pr in the promotion the trailer they put anthony hopkins front and center mm. so that that no doubt helped that and natalie portman was front and center as well and she yeah. was a yeah. star um you know she's a she's a, a name I like that approach. However, we get back. Before the screenplay was prepared, he had to appro- he approached, sorry, he had approached Sam Rockwell to play the part. Rockwell was interested, but Favreau changed the decision after the screen test of Robert Downey Jr. I'm a huge Sam Rockwell fan, me too. Um, and I, I think him. I would have enjoyed that, but I, you know, yeah. Every time I talk to someone about Sam Rockwell, I forget his name, but I go to what I call him 
I call him the world's most attractive hobo. That's interesting. He's, he's a bit. He's a bit rough around the edges. He is. Yeah. Have you seen Mr. Wright? No. Which one's that one again? It's the one where the girl falls in love with a guy. It turns out he's a hitman. That's fun. What's about the one where he plays the game show host who's apparently oh, working for the CIA? Oh, God, that's so good. That's George Clooney's first movie. Yeah, his directorial oh, movie. Um, shoot. Did, I can't remember the name, but I, I kind of want to see that film. But I want to see not, more Sam Rockwell. It? It's really good. It's I really see, good. I can't think the name of it now, but it's a really good film. He was great in Moon. I like <clears> Moon. Yeah, yeah, Moon's good. So, Favreau chose Downey because he felt the actor's past made him an appropriate choice for the part, explaining the best and worst moments of Robert's life have been in the public eye. He had to find an inner balance to overcome obstacles that went far beyond his career. That's Tony Stark. Can't disagree with that. Uh, maybe. maybe. I don't okay, know. Tony I don't Stark know didn't wake Tony up in a Stark. bush or something. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Come on like- out with it. <laughs> what other what what character doesn't have to find an ill balance to overcome obstacles that go far beyond their career? Like, what, what are you talking about? You could apply that to Captain America. You could apply it to Hulk. You could apply it to what are you talking about? I don't like. I understand what it what it's saying is. Yeah. What they're saying is he he liked the drink and he was reckless and yeah. they want that, but they can't say that. <laughs> they they're can't both say, alcoholics. We, we hide him for the drink and the drugs and the reckless youth because that's <laughs> we think that's cool and that connects yeah. with. They can't say that. Okay. It's a bit of a it's um, a bit of a wishy washy statement from Favreau. Well apparently not Man, all dumpsters contain gold rub. See the thing is, like Favreau to me is one of my guys mm. because like like I was young when his first cool movies were out. Um kinda like Kevin Smith to a certain mm. extent and, and kind of those were movies that I came up really and Robert Rodriguez came up really liking. Oh, yeah. Um and it's slightly disappointing to see him go to when he and he had this amazing series on HBO, which is a roundtable talk discussion with actors um, and directors and people in Hollywood. And it's like really just just them. It's not like an interview. It's amazing. They do loads of it. It's like it's like the, they invented the podcast. Yeah, right? I get but it's with idea. lots of actors. It's a great it's a great series. And he's so upfront and kind of like, um, it feels like he's very honest in it. And I really connected to Favreau through that kind of stuff. And now, every time I read some of his quotes these days, it feels like, oh, he's properly in the Hollywood system now. It's just wishy washy statements and (laughs) disappointing. (laughs) Disappointing. It's like here's something from Simon Pegg these days. You used to be one of us. You used to be one of us, Simon Pegg. I feel that with Simon Pegg so much. I, oh, it's, it's, it's weird. Robert Downey Jr. described his portrayal of Tony Stark as a challenge of making a wealthy establishmentarian, establishmentarian weapons manufacturing, hard drinking, womanizing prick into a character who is likable and a hero. It's <laughs> a challenge. Yeah, man. Yeah, I think they found. I think they. I think they. It was the same challenge that they had in 1963 when they introduced the character. <laughs> The script was not completely finished when filming began, since the filmmakers were more focused on the story and the action, so the dialogue was mostly ad-libbed throughout filming. Director John Favreau acknowledged this made the film feel more natural. Some she, some, sorry, 
Some scenes were shot with two cameras to capture line imp lines improvised on the spot. Robert Downey Jr. would ask for many takes of one scene since he wanted to try something new. Gwyneth Paltrow, on the other hand, had a difficult time trying to match Downey with a suitable line as she never knew what he would say. I think this is such a key part of why this film is so different from mm. any other superhero movie. And they've never replicated it since, I don't think. Um, Iron Man 2 is a little bit more normal, feels a little bit more scripted. Mm. This, like a lot of people talk about, we've got an awful lot of feedback, which we're going to get to. And there's a lot of people I've heard from that say, oh, it's a basic story. It's a basic, it's a good start for Marvel, but it's basic. I'm going, guys, you, I don't think you're getting, like this script it's not a script, sorry. The dialogue in this movie is so different, so fresh. Yeah. It sparkles. The chemistry between the three leads is phenomenal. It, it just pops off the screen in a way that no, there is not a single other. Like, watching watching um, um, Downey and, and, and Paltrow... Um, it's kind of like watching Hepburn and Tracy. It's like watching some of the old screwball comedies of the 40s and 50s. Like, there mm. are elements of, like, bringing up Baby and His Girl Friday in it. Like, it, they're just... There's this... It's just... I could... I, it's so good. I could ditch all the Iron Man stuff. And, and <laughs> can I just have more of Downey and Paltrow flirting and fighting and arguing? And It's so good. Yeah. It's going back to it. I'll get. We'll get onto obviously what I thought, but wow, you're right. It did spring from the screen. However, Jeff Bridges wasn't initially on board with the improvising, as he said, "It was so lucky to have John there and Downey because both of them are terrific improvisers, and we spent a couple of weeks working on the script and rehearsing together because we didn't like the original script, and we thought, oh yeah, we fixed this, fixed that." Then came the first day of shooting, and Marvel kind of threw out our script that we had been working on and said, no, that's no good. It's got to be this and that. And so there was a lot of confusion about what our script was and what we were going to say. It drove me absolutely crazy until I made a slight adjustment in my brain that was, Jeff, just relax. You're making a $200 million student film. Just relax and have fun. That kind of did, that kind of did the trick because here I get to play with these two incredible artists and just jam, and that's what we ended up doing. God, I love Jeff Bridges. <laughs> I love him so much, and that's just a great way of approaching it. He's not he's not doing a Christian Bale slap slamming things to the ground, going "That's it, I'm not walking off the set." Set. It's like, okay, I'm gonna have to <laughs> change my attitude about this to work with it, and it. Yeah, man. man. What a great, what a great thing to do. According to John Favreau, when making this film, there was a lot of pressure for it to succeed. This was particularly due to Marvel using their characters as collateral when they received a $525 million seven-year deal called a non-recourse debt facility, allowing them to make original films based on their properties. Marvel wanted to have complete creative control over their characters, build a film library, and greater pr uh, profit potential than the deals they've linked, they've linked with other studios owning the film rights to their characters. Marvel also changed its name to Marvel Entertainment Incorporated to establish a Hollywood presence. If the film didn't succeed, 
Marvel would have lost the intellectual property rights to their library. Now that, just just in case that didn't come across to you, what this is saying is that Marvel, as an independent film company here, needed to raise money to make these movies. They did not want to go to a production company... Uh, work with 20th Century Fox or Sony and say, you you know, we'll make the movie together, you fund the movie and all that kind of stuff because they were sick and tired of having those movie companies interfere with how the characters and, and, and making it all different. They didn't want another Fantastic Four. They didn't want another Daredevil or Punisher. So they have to raise a huge amount of money. They made two movies on the back of this, didn't they? Um, yeah, two movies on the back of this. Just, just counting the Iron Man movies, yeah. I mean, the third one, um, we know how much the third one grossed in. It was incredible. No, sorry. The, the, this $525 million deal, oh, I'm assuming, is for Marvel Studios as a whole. Yeah. So maybe they funded all of the um, first three or four movies on the back of that 500 mil. Um, we'll perhaps have to do the numbers. But to get that loan, they put up the rights to their characters as collateral. If the movies had flopped and Marvel Mm. could not have repaid that 500 mil loan, then the debt company, whoever they borrowed the money from, the bank, whatever, would have had ownership over the characters that they put up in the deal. Like, that is... is a the biggest gamble you can possibly make. Oh, you are gambling everything. They would have lost everything. They would have lost everything. They bet the farm to make these movies happen, and that's not something I knew until Will did this research. Incredible. Obviously, we had the uh, hindsight of knowing it went well, but that is a bum clencher of a deal, isn't it? That is a it, real. It, it, I can't. I cannot believe it. Mm. I can't believe they would they would have gambled quite so much. And look, it influenced. You know, the, the, it's why these movies are hundred and something million dollar movies, and not two three hundred dollar movies, yeah. three hundred million dollar movies, because they don't have the. They, they are an independent company working with just that cash. Mm. Wow. wow! 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 The line "I am Iron Man" was ad libbed by Robert Downey Jr. Producer Kevin Feige approved using it in the final cut of the film and credits this with his decision to largely do away with secret identities in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Thor's alter ego, Donald Blake, is similarly not used. I think this was the right decision. Apart Uh, from obviously Spider-Man, I mean, who else has a secret identity in the MCU? Well, it depends on the era. I mean, at the start, everybody... um, Everybody has a secret identity at the start, literally, all of them. So, I don't know, it's hard. I think the secret identity um, lends itself to an awful lot of really good um, tension and storytelling, but stuff that tends to come from interaction with supporting casts, um, and these movies tend to do away with supporting casts to a large extent. You Mm. get, like, one, two, you know, um, and, and... that it lends itself better to things like cliffhangers, ongoing on, ongoing stories, um, more more personal life tensions and dramas, yeah. and so I think they work a lot better in a, in, a, in a Disney Plus series. Um, like they worked quite nicely in uh, Ms. Marvel. Um, oh yeah, that worked especially well. It's I was frustrated that by the end the whole family knew, but uh, whatever. <laughs> That's just you. I was ha- I was fine. Um, <laughs> reflecting back on the film, 
Looking back on getting Marvel Comics adapted into films, Avi Arid said, When we got involved with Marvel, Marvel had a very low self-esteem. It seemed like no- it seemed like something that is old. Comics were very niche. No one saw the value of it. No one wanted Spider-Man. It took a while to unite the rights. And in those days, those rights were, I would say, they were sloppily put together. And Marvel, at the time, tended to sell the properties for anything they can get. <laughs> Oof. We licensed studios. We participated in reviews on films like X-Men, Spider-Man, Daredevil, Hulk, 2005's Fantastic Four. At the time, I was running a company plus getting the movies made and all, in all fairness, on the job learning of the live action business. Kevin was working for Lauren Schuler Donna on X-Men and he became basically the guy that will tell me really what's going on and when. The first MC movie uh, we made was Iron Man. New Line didn't know what to do with it. I don't want to put anyone's name on it because if they missed it, they just didn't get it. And that's totally legitimate. And we had two movies to start with. We had that and we had Hulk with Universal. The key issue was Hulk was known. So we thought it gives us a leg up. We had the relationship with Universal, specifically on Hulk. All these movies were licensed when I was 11 and I'm 70 now. All of these things were old deals, weren't good deals. I mean, that's a little exaggeration, but he's, he, I mean, he's right. Marvel, like, Marvel got played. Yeah, Marvel absolutely. Comics got played. They went into the entertainment world and they cut all these deals, not understanding the worth and value of what they had, and they got terrible deals because they didn't, they didn't get it. They didn't know how to swim with sharks Mm. um and in hollywood it's nothing but sharks that want to give you nothing take your character and exploit it to make more money now there's a little irony in that if you just look at some of these creators that you might say were created these characters and were exploited by marvel and never got to see all the profits but um it yeah it's some bad 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 deals were made all over town We've covered it quite a bit in previous episodes, especially, as of course, you've mentioned Ron Perlman. Not that one. Awful man. Anyway. Well, that's not... Uh, I, I, I meant really that when Marvel went to market, mm. when Marvel in the 60s, 70s went to the wider entertainment world mm. and said, who wants to give us money to make a TV show of Spider-Man and Hulk and all these kind of stuff, and who wants to license these characters? They made terrible deals because they did not understand the entertainment industry and the deal... And also the entertainment industry wasn't th- that interested. Mm. So, But those deals were, were made for... Dozens of decades and decades and decades. You know, um, you think of how Sony have still got Spider-Man and that is not something that Marvel can put a stop to. You know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, Marvel, Marvel. it's only because Disney bought Fox that they got the X-Men rights back and the Fantasy Four rights back. And these are not great deals, but they were made yeah. a long time ago. Absolutely. Kevin Feige looks back on the first Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk as an interesting challenge. I always sort of believed that we could do it ourselves from a creative point of view and a management point of view. From a funding point of view, it's a whole other story. And that's where David Maisel and Avi put together what became the financing to become Marvel Studios, which I was very happy about because that meant we got to make the calls. For as much pressure as that was to say, can you go from single-handedly 
I don't mean me, I mean the studio, single-handedly producing zero movies on your own to producing two movies in 2008. I said yes, because what else am I going to say? <laughs> no, <laughs> we didn't have Spider-Man. We didn't have Fantastic Four. We had the B-list characters. That was the LA Times or somebody's headline. I never really thought that because I knew that Iron Man was really cool and Hulk was arguably, next to Spider-Man, the biggest character we had, I thought they all had amazing potential. But the goal was to deliver these two movies and make the best Iron Man film we could and make the best version of Hulk. Even coming five years after another version of Hulk. It wasn't this. It wasn't. This is the first of a 22 movie cinematic saga. I think that's the real important thing to remember looking back at this. Mm. There was no plan for Avengers. Nope. There, there, there wasn't. Would it have been a good idea? Sure. <laughs> but they were just trying to not lose the rights to all their characters. They're just trying to make a good movie, get that money back, pay that debt off, and, and get going from there. It was baby steps. Baby steps to get a but, ball rolling. Yeah, but with, but uh, yeah, baby steps, you leave some threads. You leave a door open. Yeah. Right? I, and I think, yeah, carry on. Carry on. Looking back at his first appearance uh, at Comic-Con in 2006, Feige commented, I think that panel, in a large part, was to say that Marvel's making movies themselves now, and here's the information we have at this point. My favourite part of that is when somebody asks, is the Avengers ever possible? We had no real plans at that point. It was a pipe dream. So much of, we <laughs> so much of what we've done is based on a pipe dream. <laughs> Yeah, man, really. Man. And you know, like like we said, like I think if you look at and I don't want to you know really punch down at DC, but yeah. You think about I watched I think it's the Batman versus Superman movie where they <sighs> introduce all of the Justice League mm. in one go. Yeah. And then we don't get any movies building them up. We just nope. get the Justice League movie. Like <clears throat> that rush to do it. It felt rushed. That rush to do it, and I've heard mm. Kevin Feige talk and Aviara talk about the plan is make the best movie we can, yes. not not build a universe, not build a cinematic empire, not build a team. Make the best Iron Man movie we can, then make the best Hulk movie we can. Leave doors open, leave you know threads dangling. And then, hey, look, it all went very well. Let's do the... And obviously, they put it in the contracts. They, they smartly locked these stars up for a long period of time if all went well. And it did, and they were able to. But it wasn't as, it, as other people would have done, and it would have been done in the past. We do an Avengers movie straight away. Mm. Yeah, they, re they, they did the right pacing here. So, that brings me on to how the movie was received. So, Iron Man received two Oscar nominations, Best Sound Editing and Best Visual Effects, but lost to The Dark Knight for Sound Editing and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button for Visual Effects. I wonder which film has stood the test of time the best. Dark Knight, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've heard no one talk about The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. In, in a long, it long passed time. into pop culture, didn't it, as a thing of uh, Briefly. just referring to like no, it still it still does. It's uh, if you if you want to talk about I don't know a young person that looks old, that's the reference you'll make. Oh yeah, it, it, it's it's in there definitely. Okay, in 2022, just last year, 
The film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. You can't argue with that, I don't think. You know, That's a high honour for a film. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but, hey... We talk about awards. We talk about high honours. What did what did the people really think, Rob? What did the people really think? Tell us what think? the people think, Mr. Hollywood. Well, Mr. Hollywood uh, doesn't dilly-dally when it comes to the will of the people, which is why he logged on to Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> uh, Rotten Tomatoes, it has a score of 94%, with an audience score of 91%. That is incredible. There are it's some amazing really, really movies that don't re- yeah. they don't reach the nineties percent. There's still some great movies in the seventies and the eighties percent. It's a, it's an incredibly well received and well thought of movie. Well received. Uh, got some quotes here from Roger Ebert. At the end of the day, it's Robert Downey Jr. who powers the liftoff, separating this from most other superhero movies. AV Club said, "Iron Man is the rare comic book movie that makes the prospect of a sequel seem like a promise instead of a threat." That's really funny. <laughs> like that. The Wall Street Journal said, The gadgetry is absolutely dazzling. The action is mostly exhilarating. The comedy is scintillating. <laughs> and the whole enormous enterprise throbs with dramatic energy. 2008. Such a long time ago now, Will. Yeah. Can you remember, what were you doing in, in uh, 2008? Can you remember? I uh, had just received my letter to go to university for the first time. I was the first man in my family to go to university. I also tried stand-up comedy for the first time and failed. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, long time ago. Yeah, I was living with my mum in Gosport. I just... um, I would have left my job working at a cinema and moved on up to work for the council... Uh, to work for social services, try and help kids. That didn't go very well for me. Um, and I was running a comedy club um, and uh, gigging around and stuff. Yeah, I um, yeah, I think it would have been my key partying years as well. <laughs> my key. Um, I've got money. I live in a very cheap, small bed sit. I've got money in my pocket. I can do what I want. Um, but for the rest of the world. Uh, Barack Obama was elected president um, of the United States in 2008. Was we that. had? Who did we have? We in 2008 we had. Oh God, we had the coalition, didn't we? No, we had Gordon Brown. No, Gordon Brown, that was it. Oh God, Gordon Brown selling off all the gold. Um, there was a reason uh, for that, but we won't go into it. We have one of them, one of them global financial crises that keeps happening yeah. in my lifetime. Um, <laughs> every time I think about buying a house, one mm. occurs. It's pretty cool. Um, Fidel Castro uh, resigned as president of Cuba after 32 years in power. Wow! And of course, we had Heath Ledger dying as a result of an accidental overdose Very of tragic. medications. Um, in the uh, in the music world, Beyonce and Jay Z tied the knot in a very secret secretive wedding. Ooh, um, yes. Oh, this doesn't belong here. I don't know why this is the music. <laughs> also, Let's do in it music, anyway. the swimmer Michael Phelps won eight gold medals at the Olympic Games. A great moment in musical history. Um, he broke Mark Spitz's record of seven gold medals, uh, which had stood since 1972. I think I he know would- what happened there. Uh, you saw the word record and went, yeah, that belongs in music. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Gold record, that belongs in music. <laughs> Gold record. 
he went. He, he would keep going. He would win more and more gold medals at future Olympics. Mm. Michael Phelps is like possibly the greatest. Like for for on accomplishments, he might be the greatest athlete ev- that's ever lived. Yeah. Um, uh, also in music, <clears throat> uh, Katy Perry's "I Kissed a Girl" uh, was probably the biggest, the biggest song of the year, maybe, and and mm. launched Katy Perry as like this. Ma- I mean, it, it would cross over into pop culture as well. It became a big reference oh. point. Launched Katy Perry as a big star. I think the best um, cover I heard of it was Vic and Bob on Shooting Stars singing it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Amy Winehouse won like five or six Grammys, oh, but yes, um, her visa was denied, and she had to do the performance live via remote satellite from London, a studio in London, because America wouldn't let her in. Um, But the Brits were conquering America all over. X Factor winner Leona Lewis, you remember her, Leona Lewis. She won the third X Factor. Um, (laughs) Her song Bleeding Love, which was massive here in 2007, became massive in America in 2007. uh, 2008, sorry, became the biggest selling single in 2008. I I I still claim it as a banger, Bleeding Love is a is a really cool song. I don't um, remember it. I'd have to hear it to to. You don't remember yeah. anything outside of video games. I'm not very with, good with pop music. With, with anything, <laughs> shut up, shut up. Let's see if you remember some of these movies. <laughs> uh, the Dark Knight was obviously the biggest movie of the yes. year, clicking over a billion. What do you think the second biggest movie of the year was? Ooh, 2008. God, this is. Oh God, what else was there? Well, I can to... I can tell you. We had Mamma Mia. Yeah, um, I'm not, these these are ones that aren't in. Mm. We have it was the year of Slumdog Millionaire, of Wally, of uh, Sex in the City, the movie, of Kung Fu Panda, um, of Taken, and of Twilight, the beginning of the Twilight Saga. My- None of those are the, the second though. <sighs> no, I, it's the I, return. It's the return of a classic franchise. Oh, it's it Indiana took, Jones, isn't it? It is. It's the Crystal Skull <sighs> taking over seven hundred and ninety million. I enjoyed it, except for some parts which I really didn't like. I, I I think there were some good moments to it. There's some great ideas, but I'm a big Indi- I was a big Indiana Jones fan around the time, and I knew years before that it was the combination of two unused scripts. They were they merged uh, together right. into one, and I was recognizing right. bits from the bits I read. Um, looking forward to the new one, though. This year, I am looking forward to the new one. The third highest grossing movie of two thousand eight is a superhero movie. Right, so Spider Man six hundred and twenty nine million. Oh. It has a massive star in the lead role. It was Hancock, wasn't it? It was Hancock. Well oh. done, buddy. Well done. God. Yeah, Hancock. I had, I had no like Hancock is a blip on my radar. Barely, I did not think it was such a massively high-grossing movie. Well, it was um, a high-concept thing and a fairly original idea for a major blockbuster movie. Took uh, more money than Wally, than <laughs> Mamma Mia, than Kung Fu Panda. That's bonkers. That is that is mad. What's the it's the power of Will Smith back then, wasn't it? Must uh, have been. The first the first half of that film was good. Then it sort of descended Yeah, into, I agree. I yeah. agree. Um in over in Marvel Comics, which we've not looked at before, I thought it was a good thing to do. Over in Marvel Comics in 2008, uh, the comic book Marvel Universe is still reeling from the events of the Civil War and the Ooh. death of Captain America. And in the midst of that, the world faces a terrifying new reality, the secret invasion of the Skrulls, um, a huge epic that lasted into the following year. Um, 
in space. The Kree Empire is attacked by the forces of Ultron, kicking off the Second Annihilation War, something that we've looked at in our bonus episodes. Um, Star-Lord would lead a band of doomed rebels in what would eventually become the Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. Um Having, after having his personal history altered by dark mystic forces, Spider-Man's life begins anew as reality is altered to eliminate his marriage to Mary Jane, giving Spider-Man a brand new status quo and a brand new start as a single man in the Marvel Universe. By the end of the year, Norman Osborn would become an American hero. Norman Osborn, an American <laughs> hero, replacing Nick Fury as the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., and forming his own twisted version of the Avengers. Let's take you behind the page now on the beginnings of the origins of um, of Iron Man, Tony Stark, and the Marvel Universe itself. Since we are charting the beginning of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, let's take a look at the beginning of the of the first Marvel Universe, the comic book universe. Marvel Comics, and this can't be. This can't be overstated. It completely changed and revolutionized the concept of the superhero. DC Comics had created largely all the traditional um, superheroes, um, Superman, Batman, Green Lantern Mm. heroes, and they were very much made in the traditional mold. The 30s, the 40s. Strong, confident men with power who knew how to use that power to get justice, and were just sort of inherently heroic. Um, Just inherently had all the things that the person needed to be essentially a perfect hero. When Marvel comes along in the 60s, it's a time when superheroes have fallen out of favour and out of fashion. Mm. Um, There's been a moral panic um, led against them by a book called The Seduction of the Innocent. There were burnings of comic books and there were... Senate subcommittee hearings about whether they should be banned and regulated and everything. And the fifties were a dark time for comic books, and an awful lot of, in general, though, after the Second World War, people weren't that interested in superheroes. Like Superman and Batman kind of hung around and, and stuff like that, but all the a lot of the other characters kind of just vanished. The original Flash, the original Green Lantern, they just never really took off again after that point. Um, in the 50s, the superhero and, 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 the, and the 60s, DC Comics have been so neutered by the Comic Code Authority and its stringent, um, its stringent kind of strides against any violence and action in comic books that Superman and Batman have become very comical figures um, hmm. and all their adventures were based around funny happenings and, and uh, getting transformed into gorillas or... <laughs> Aliens disguising themselves as it, it was a very silly odd time. Um, Marvel comes along in the 60s and they create a series of superheroes that are plagued with emotional problems and have these things that give them dramatic and emotional weight. So, heroes that were all emotionally vulnerable, racked with self doubt and guilt and anxiety and going through existential crisis the marvel universe is built on this rich vein of human emotion that simply is not present in any of the dc superheroes at this point in time the 1960s superman and batman 
always knew what to do to beat the bad guy to mm. save the day um and at this stage they really had no many layers of depth or complexity iron man comes along and he is this broken tragic figure who is in his own eyes a monster certainly in the first issue a monster that should hide himself away from the world in 1963, the character first appears in an issue of a science fiction anthology series that Marvel published called Tales of Suspense. Mm. Um, he's not given his own comic book, um, his own starring role, because no one at the company knows if the character will be popular, will connect, will have an audience. Um, but they decide to give half the comic of Tales of Suspense to this Iron Man character, certainly for one issue, to see how it goes. Um, <laughs> there are many chefs in the kitchen when it comes to creating Iron Man, chiefly Stan Lee, who comes up and conceives the original kind of concept of the character and the original story. And he was all set to write the first issue, but due to a scheduling conflict, Stan has his younger brother, Larry, Larry Leiber, write the actual script. With um, Stanley goes on to write kind of future scripts. So um, Stanley and Larry Leiber, the two brothers, kind of uh, are the master, the, the, the writing master. Of that first one, um, the Iron Man character is designed by Jack Kirby, who designed freaking everybody, the fanta- all of the Fantastic Four and Captain America and um, Ant Man and Giant Man and Hulk and all of this, and he drew the front cover to the first. Um, Tales of Suspense, issue 39 so he's the one that conceives of and designs the first look of Iron Man but then the inside artwork um, and the design of Tony Stark is done by another artist called Don Heck Um, this design however is not the famous if you think of Iron Man right now you're picturing the red and gold aren't you yeah yeah yeah. I always picture that Um, that's not what Iron Man looks like to begin with it's this massive bulky clunky armour it's grey it looks monstrous. It looks it looks kind of medieval. It looks like a uh, a knight of armor, you know, a big bulky, yeah, armored knight come to life. Mm. Um, later on, in the same year, artist Steve Ditko, who co-created Spider Man, um, he redesigns Iron Man to make him sleek, slender, and creates the red and gold color scheme that endured from that point through to the present day. Um, so he really needs to be name-checked in the, the, the creation of this popular character. Um, Stan Lee has said that he based his uh, his Tony Stark's kind of appearance and looks on, on Howard Hughes and his personality, um, saying, Howard Hughes was one of the most colourful men of our time. He was an inventor, an adventurer, a multi-billionaire, a ladies' man, and finally, a nutcase. <laughs> 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 Perfect. Good old Stan. Um, famous writer Jerry Conway um, weighed in about the Iron Man as a character, and he said, Here you have this character who, on the outside, is invulnerable. I mean, just can't be touched. But inside is a wounded figure. Stan made it very much an in your face wound. His heart was broken, literally broken. But there's a metaphor going on there, and that's, I think, what made the character so very interesting. Um, Tony Stark, when he's first introduced, is a huge, unapologetic capitalist and anti-communist. All the early Iron Man stories are pro the war in Vietnam, pro the US military, 
anti-communism, pro-capitalism, and they're all based around Iron Man protecting rich Tony Stark's businesses, smashing communists, and making sure Tony's weapons can be sold to the military to kill people. Um, And so much of early Iron Man stories, like a fight off commie spies and saboteurs and stuff, or building new weapons to help the military in the Vietnam Mm. War, and this is being published in an era of, of huge political and social upheaval. Um, brave, very brave. Where, well, we'll get on to that. Yeah. Where young people are <laughs> protesting against the Vietnam War, against the military, against the politicians and the political culture. Counterculture movement is a huge part of Marvel's audience in the 1960s. And these stories flew in the face um, of these people's powerful beliefs. There's an interview on the original DVD for this Iron Man movie where Stan Lee says, I think I give myself a dare. It was the height of the Cold War. The readers, the young readers, if there was one thing they hated, it was war. It was the military. So I got a hero who represented that to the hundredth degree. He was a weapons manufacturer. He was providing weapons for the army. He was rich. He was an industrialist. I thought it would be fun to take that kind of character that nobody would like, none of our readers would like, and shove him down their throats and make them like him. And he became very popular. That is such... I don't want to use the word brave again, but that is just such like a... and It's nice when you set yourself a personal creative challenge and you go, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to see if I can do this. I don't believe him. Um, I don't believe him. As always with Stanley takes, Stanley quotes, you have to take everything he says with a grain of salt. He is a massive self provoke Do you know what a carnival barker is? Oh, is it the person who's roll up, roll up, see the chicken? That's the carnival barker. Stanley's number one job at Marvel is the carnival barker, right? He's a a massive self-promoter and a Marvel promoter. He's very good at blending the truth to fit a positive, successful narrative. And he's also an old man who forgets things, right? (laughs) More importantly. And at some point, he's been been telling the story for so many decades, it's the truth to him. I don't believe this, quote. I don't believe Stan Lee thought it would be fun to make a character who would be unpopular and go against the grain of the kids reading the comics. I don't think that was a decision. He just thought the character would be... He, he thought he was just a neat idea for a character. End of story. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think he thought it was going to be unpopular. I think he thought it was going to be popular. I think he thought, as you would do about the Second World War, our brave soldiers are fighting a war. We'll do a pro-military comic. A pro-war comic. Yes. Yeah, you, know, you know, it would be the rah-rah thing that we did in the 40s. It'll be that yeah. all over again. Um. And because uh, part of why I don't believe this is because as protests ramped up, anti-war sensibilities ramped up, public opinion was very um, noticeably against the war. Stanley changed tax completely, and Iron Man <laughs> stories completely ditched the overt pro-war stance and just start to focus on more harmless sci-fi stories. Mm. And that I believe is 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 what went on. They changed tax because they went. I think we made a mistake here, lads. Um, Later in in the same year, 1963, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby include Iron Man in their new superhero team, the Avengers, um, which helps to boost the character's popularity and serves to position Iron Man as the central figure and leader of Marvel superheroes. And he gets that role almost by default for the same reason 
He's the lead in the MCU by default. <laughs> because the most popular in, in the comic books, the most in, in the movies, it's because Marvel don't own the rights to X-Men, um, Spider-Man or Hulk. In the comic books, Iron Man is the central superhero figure because the most popular heroes, Spider-Man and the Hulk, are both like outcasts, vastly unsuited for leadership roles and to be in charge. So they can't, like Spider-Man can't need the Avengers. The Hulk can't need the Avengers. Iron Man is the bronze medal winner (laughs) that accidentally (laughs) gets bumped up to the front of the, of the, in front of the press because the others are not able to. By 1968, the character proved popular enough to give in his own comic book series called The Invincible Iron Man. So you'd have the Incredible Hulk, the Amazing Spider-Man, and now the Invincible Iron Man. Um, and he's remained a central figure in the Marvel Universe ever since. Um, Tony Stark begins life as a deeply vulnerable and emotional character. Mm. Literally moments from death the entire time. A man with a shattered body who wraps himself in a metal shell. Which, yes, is a powerful metaphor. A man with a broken heart who pushes away the people he cares about and loves to protect them and protect himself. And it's important to always remember that the very best Iron Man stories have sought to balance the sheer badass nature of a guy flying around in a wearable tank blowing (laughs) stuff up with an emotional vulnerability that plays at its core. We've had tons and tons of messages about this project. People seem to be really energised by the fact we're going back to the start of the MCU, re-examining Iron Man and recontextualising it and giving it a proper MVM treatment that we haven't been able to do three years ago. Um, You can always get in touch with us here. Marvel versus Marvel at gmail.com or you can drop us a tweet at Marvel versus Will. You've got the mailbag. Take it away. I do. Uh, first up, we got Danny11M. That's his name on Patreon. I Who's think it's a- Danny11M. But I might Daffy- be wrong. Danny11M. I like to call, da- I like to call him Danny11Me. You call him 11M. We all know you're old friends, but I am more formal. <laughs> Danny11M for me. 11M. 11M. That has a very good... Very good ring to it. Anyway, he is a big fan of Iron Man. He was always one of my faves going back to the Marvel Action Hour, despite that show really not holding up as well as X-Men and Spidey. That's the cartoon that we looked at, isn't it? We looked it at the is, Marvel yeah, Action we, Hour and that 90s cartoon, yeah. You can I find that previous episode. Iron Man. Except, except we covered the first <laughs> season of that show. Which doesn't have that. Doesn't have the badass theme tune. No. Instead, it has a theme tune written by... Was it Keith Emerson from That's Emerson right. Lake and Palmer? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, just, it's just noise. It's just like it's, it's and it's like, and then, then randomly a medieval style like bloody organ oh, comes out is, of nowhere. Yeah, because yeah. that's Keith Emerson from Emerson yeah. Lake and Palmer. He's got to be able to get that organ as a tax write-off, so he has to put it in as many <laughs> as many songs as possible. Why else would you hire Keith Emerson to write your theme if he's not going to do that? Anyway, 11M continues. Everything about the trailers was perfect, so I hyped up as many people as I could to go see it on opening weekend. 
perfect opener to the MCU. Pretty much grounded in our world, but this is where it splinters off into the fantastical. Just as Vision says about superpowered beings becoming commonplace after Tony announces himself to the world. Bit sad, we lost the heft of the suits as the film progressed to nanotech. Love the suiting up process and how it would gradually get smoother and smoother. I, I agree, Danny 11M, uh, Danny, Big Danny 11. Um, I think this this weird thing the mo- that, that, that gets lost in the movies, like, I, as a child, and I know it's about a lot of people that are Iron Man fans, we mm. love the suiting up bit. Yeah, I loved That's it. Really, I loved watching it. I mean, I mean, outside of the outside of the movie, I love mm. it in the comics. I love it in the cartoon series. I I love it. I I had an action figure that was the only Iron Man action figure I bought as a child was Quick Change Tony Stark, <laughs> where you clipped on all the pieces of his armor and put his helmet on, so I could do the change. Like I could change him all the time. That suiting up thing is really cool. In the comics, they'd introduce new and different ways of him being able to suit up, like a briefcase that has got his suit in it, which we see later in the next movie. And Uh, those are cool, cool moments, and it's really frustrating that they... They don't, they don't, I mean, it's 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 okay in the is it Infinity War where he's glo- he's got a glove and then the nano tech comes on. It's just not as cool. It's just not as cool. It's it's more efficient, but lacks a style. Basically, it lacks. Yeah, I don't lacks, I don't come to comic books for efficiency. For efficiency, <laughs> it's not <laughs> really efficiency. a thing on my mind. I hope this is a very efficient comic book today. That's the most German thing I've heard anyone say, and I'm married to one. Anyway, anyway, um, I want you to follow my lead on this. Okay. Uh, okay. Whenever I say eleven M, you got to go do 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 do. Eleven M. Do do do. I have to. Eleven M. There we go. Do do. Anyway, we won't continue with that. It just came in my head. I thought, hey, you got a nickname. You got your theme tune. Be happy, Danny. He. The last bit of his letter goes. Also, a big tangent, but I'm convinced we wouldn't have the MCU as this is today without RoboCop and RoboCop Two. Fave is clearly a huge fan, and some of sorry, Fav is in Favio. Fav is clearly a huge fan, and some of the most iconic scenes are obvious homages to those films, using infrared to see through the wall before punching through. The heads-up display targeting Tony on Ironmonger's back is identical to the fight at the end of RoboCop Two, and even more obvious is the hammer drone's malfunctioning, spreading the ro- Robo love. Absolutely, I noticed the RoboCop nods in the first two Iron Man films, and I bl- well, I love the first one. The second one's a bit ropey, but I love Robo. Cop. Great film. I, I yeah, that, that's great. Thank you very much for that, Danny. Um, I didn't. I mean, I think I've seen so much mm. stuff with robot things in that those, <laughs> that those didn't. Like I've seen that in comics and TV shows and movies hundreds and hundreds of times. So I don't really. It didn't really connect to me as oh, that's a reference to these movies. But you are probably very right. I I'm going to go with that anyway. Thank you very much, Eleven M. Dean Walpole said it was a big deal a 22 year old me with a massive comic book collection filled with old iron man comics i bought when i was 10 i think to a nerd like myself i remember loving the fact that kept the old entitled pos persona of tony stark i still think the whole building and reveal from the cave of the original iron man suit is one of the best marvel moments yeah dean i completely agree that was this is awesome this, this movie has some very solid moments. It's definitely one of them. John Me- Me- Meehan said, It's by far my favourite thing Marvel have ever done. 
Everything about it is perfect. RDJ is Tony Stark. The music is phenomenally well curated, and I think even then, if it had been just just been that one film and the MCU hadn't kicked off on from it, I'd still see it as an incredible one-off film. You had a rough time reading that, didn't you? You fell apart. I, I did. It, 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 it went. It, the, the wording went in a way I didn't expect. <laughs> I think uh, John's. I mean, I don't know about. Uh, it, it's a very. I love. I love this movie. Like I love so much. So many elements of this movie. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I come close to say it's perfect, but I, I really think it's great. And I think you're right, um, John. Um, if it was just one and done, we'd still go. Aren't we glad we got that? Yeah, absolutely. Luke Wright wrote in to say, I was 16 when this came out, saw it after high school with some friends and remember really enjoying it. The film itself didn't really stand out. I remember, I I really liked it. I really liked it, but basically growing up with the Raimi Spider-Man films and Batman Begins, I had no real expectations for a superhero to be bad like I know some older people did. Oh, that's so important, Luke. Mm. He had no expectations for a superhero film to be bad. Mm. Um, I don't know, man. That sounds like you never saw Ghost Rider <laughs> oh! or The Punisher or yeah. Nick Fury on television. Um, but that's that's really interesting. Yeah, there there are. Yeah. I mean, there there be loads more people these days now who their expectations of superhero movies are completely different. Like I still bask in the glow of. I can't believe I can't believe I got to watch an Eternals movie, a Shang Chi movie. I it's just so cool to get them, and then for them to not be horrible is something else. Is you're like, wow! I yeah. had fun watching a movie of a of a of a Z-less character from Marvel. How cool is that? God, it was like me when I was like, oh, I really hope we get to see Mister Freeze and Poison Ivy in a Batman film at some point. Be careful what you wish for. Exactly. <laughs> I have different expectations with superheroes, Luke Malad. The real standout was the post credit scene, which I only found out about a week and a half later. Oh, no! And had to watch a grainy copy on YouTube. I remember a real sense of excitement about the idea of crossover films. It's because... Yeah. Sorry. I was just about to say, I never saw the post credit sequence because back then... If I watched a film and the credits came up, I go, that was fun. I'm switching that off. <laughs> I think I'd heard. I think I must have heard or something. I don't know how I knew to stay, but I, I did. Um, I, I think there's a thing as well about that end credit sequence, as these people seem to indicate, has become mythologized into mm. being... <clears throat> Luke is presenting it here as the high point of the whole movie and what the movie was about. Yeah. Whereas we read from the people who made the movie and go, no, it was just an Easter egg. It was just a little Easter egg that people might like. We had no intention of, we had no way of making another, of making an, an Avengers movie. We just thought we'd say a fun thing. It's just amazing um, how that's gone from Easter egg to functional part of the narrative. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Luke, for writing in, bringing a unique perspective. Thank you very much, Luke. Uh, Melissa Lauren wrote in to say, I knew of Iron Man and the Avengers beforehand, but hadn't read any Iron Man comics or watched any Iron Man or Avengers cartoons or anything before seeing this movie for the first time. So I didn't know much about his personality or supporting cast, just generally knew what he looked like, both in the Iron Man suit and as Tony Stark, and kind of what his suit could do, and that he had a butler of some sort that might have just been an AI or a person. 
Yeah, I didn't know much about Iron Man. I was more of an X-Men and Spider-Man fan, so I knew about the Marvel Universe through their famous 90s cartoons and early comics because I bought the first five or so essential books of each after watching the cartoons and loved them. So I have had a markedly different experience watching the MCU movies that are focused mostly on the Avengers and Guardians of the Galaxy from how I experienced watching the non-MCU Spider-Man and X-Men movies. I suppose you could say I watched Iron Man as basically a clean slate. I really enjoyed it and was happy they were going to be making all of these Marvel movies. I have mixed feelings about the possibility of bringing the X-Men later because I do have all of that previous knowledge and huge expectations that I'm not sure will be met. There's my random thoughts. Thanks, guys. Thank you for writing in, Melissa, and for supporting us on Patreon as well. Thank you. Michael Dryberg said, I saw this at the cinema and was all kinds of excited about it. Although I was never a Marvel comic book nerd, I did dabble, and Iron Man was by far my favourite title. I felt at the time that Robert Downey Jr. was an amazing bit of casting and thought he would do a great job within the role. And as far as I'm concerned, he did not disappoint upon seeing it. As origin movies go, I think it's pretty well paced. I don't feel like they left a lot out and feel like Tony is a completely different person by the end of the movie. I don't think they could ask for a better setup of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that's illustrated what it could be with the right people involved. Yeah, I think I think I'm gonna, I think Michael's uh, thank you for writing, in, Michael. I think he's right in that. I don't think he's saying it's a great setup because Nick Fury comes in and says the word Avengers. It's a great setup because it shows if you if you care about these characters, you can you can get a really good movie out of some of these characters that aren't yet famous. Oh, absolutely, um, and I think that's what that's what the I'm, the first Iron Man movie does. Absolutely. Finally. We have King Canuck. First of his name, Lord <laughs> Protector of the Northern Realms. Master of all maple syrup. Every um, time. Every time. And, um, and uh, Wizard of Putin. <laughs> I thought that was a Wizard of Putin. What? <laughs> I thought you said Putin. Yeah, he's got a few of them. Yeah. King Canuck said, I was nine when Iron Man came out. My godfather works at the cinema, so we got to see it the night before the official premiere. Oh, I used to work at the cinema and do stuff like that. We have staff showings. Mm. If your man, if your manager was all right with it, you'd have staff showings. Yeah, um, and the projectionist, what if the projectionist wanted to see it as well? They'd stay late. The staff, you could bring a friend, couple of friends, or whatever. Um, and my eventually my cinema did away with it because we brought so many people for the Star Wars <laughs> the Star Wars prequels. Um, we brought so many people for uh, the third one. That is um, incredible. That there was like outside, and everyone brought um, toy lightsabers that were that light lit up, yeah, and people were yeah. fighting with them. And they they were there were so many people queuing up outside the very public cinema at like eleven thirty at night, quarter to twelve. That everyone in the area knew what we were doing, and it it got it was just because we brought too much attention to the fact we were having secret illegal showings. <laughs> secret illegal, two fantastic words in the British language. Anyway. King Kangot continues, I'm not sure if I had exposure to him or other Marvel heroes in a specific way before then. I was aware of the X-Men due to those movies, but hadn't watched them, and I loved Raimi Spider-Man. But I don't think I had a conception 
of the Marvel Universe like I did the DC Universe yet. I thought the movie was a lot of fun, and one of my favourite scenes is, oddly enough, the admin. Oh, God damn it. He's, he's, that's my boy. That's my boy. Love the admin. Tony's slowly building the Mark II, and his process is so in-depth that it fully justified the suspension of disbelief for every upgrade in the future. I'm a, a bit sad Stain never came back around, but for not being sure if this would be a franchise or not, great one-off adventure. Thank you, King Canuck, for getting in touch then and dropping us a line. Um, uh, Marvel versus Marvel at gmail.com is how you can get in touch, or you can find us on Twitter at Marvel versus and get loads of updates and things. Um, but also the best way to get in touch with us is by uh, joining our community on patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Um, big shout out to Peter J, Brandon Schmigilski, Randall Schmidt, Zach Thomas, Bastabeer, Sam, Bindi and Soupy, who are huge, huge, huge supporters of ours on Patreon at the top, top tier. They make it all possible to keep the lights going. They put fuel in the uh, in the fires of the engine. Um, look, guys, you guys tune in every week. You download every episode, all the deep dives. Um, you've 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 managed to get yourselves hundreds of hours. On all your favourite movies, TV shows, and characters, um, you know what we're putting together in this episode. This epic episode, the history, the context, the deep dive. You need this, and we know you need this. You are an MVM fan, but some of you are still not doing the right thing, putting your hand in the pocket, joining the community, stepping up, doing the right thing, not supporting us in ways that matter. And not supporting something that clearly matters so much to you. You're listening to everything we do. Um, think of how many hours of entertainment we bring you week after week. I mean, Will. Mm. No one does it like us. Nobody does it better. <laughs> they don't know. I, I, I listen. I listen. I check in. I listen on the other Marvel podcasts. They can't hold a candle to us. I see the terribly researched YouTube videos. They can't yeah. hold a candle to us. Well, I remember when we were first doing this podcast and trying to do our research, I actually went and checked out a whole load of other Marvel podcasts for, for research. And I was there going, this is awful. I don't want to sound bitter about the competition, but I was generally going, well, don't get me wrong, the production values were good, yeah, but it was so inane and bland, the actual content, I was just there going, what is this? This is rubbish. I mean, no one does it. If this show went away tomorrow, it guess who'd feel... be suffering? Guess who'd be suffering? You, all of you would be suffering. All, all of you will be suffering. Makes not me us, feel baby. sad for the rest. I'll be, I'll be on a beach somewhere, not me. We're not some big company... <laughs> We don't interrupt the show with nope. forced, weird adverts about mattresses or <laughs> uh, or penis help pills. Or cryptocurrency we, stuff. No, we, we don't, don't shove do that. that down your throats. No, um, but this podcast, you know, is only possible thanks to people that support us on Patreon. Um, it requires days and days of work to put everything together, to research, to write it, to produce it, to edit it. And we only exist because of Patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. So do the right thing. Support us. Buy us a coffee. Just think of it like that. If, yeah. you, were to, if you were to bump into me and Will in a pub, you'd want to buy us a drink. You'd want to say, oh, I really like your podcast. Let me get you a beer, right? Or a coffee at Starbucks or whatever. 
For the price of that, you can get on board and start supporting us for just three British Brexit pounds per month. Or just a one-off charge of just that one three-pound thing. You can get in. You can get in on the ground floor. You can support us. Cleanse your filthy souls. Um, you know, do the right thing. Become a better person. And in exchange, we'll give you so much cool content. You won't know what to do with it. Um, we've got lots of different tiers that can help you along the way, including a full-length bonus episode tier, the VIEP tier, which gets you access to insane full-length bonus shows this month we dropped maximum carnage two hours and 22 minutes exploring the biggest venom story the biggest carnage story in the history of marvel uh including the demo goblin the doppelganger cloak and dagger shriek captain america tons more well you've been through it now and experienced maximum carnage uh how, how was that for you it was a saga one of our best one of our greatest sagas it was just one thing after another, and you just don't think it's going to end, but it eventually does. But jeez, it was good. It was a lot epic, of moral complexity as well going on. Oh, absolutely! Spider-Man gets pushed to his limit. Yeah, in terms of morals. Oh god, and it was is good. he is he going to kill or is he going to stamp? Is it is it justified to kill? It's a it's a hell of a story. Um, and next month we're doing a bonus episode deep dive into the biggest. Kang story of all time the story that has already influenced the MCU we know that because they've taken the title we're bringing you the Kang dynasty that's coming to Patreon in February um so you'll get access to 30 full-length bonus episodes if you're at that tier but you can get access to uh, 27 28 mini shows including obscure marvel where i mean we'll have tons of fun every month exploring the obscure parts of the marvel universe plus early access to every show that we do that's patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel to support us Look, if you're not in a financial position to do that, you can support us in other ways. Make sure you're following us on Twitter. Make sure you're sharing all our content. And the best thing to do is to recommend us to your friends. Like, share the latest episode on Facebook, on Twitter. Tell people how cool it is. Tell your Marvel friends they need to come over here and check out MVM. Um, but for the right people, the good people, the holy people, it's patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Tons of awesome bonus experiences for you uh, on that website. Coming up on the other side of this break, it is the patented Marvel versus Marvel deep dive, a remastered deep dive into Iron Man. (laughs) 